keep it that way. Um, I was incredibly blessed to have been born into a family that taught me from the time I was very, very small about who God was. And it wasn't just an occasional Bible story here or drop you off at Sunday school there. My parents were very diligent about it and, uh, and lived it out in front of me. It was very, very important to them. And I saw that. And that, that was a wonderful privilege for me to be brought up in that. Um, one evening, after having done some, uh, done some family devotions, my parents sat down and explained the gospel. I said, I think I was about five years old. I can't tell you an exact date or anything like that, but they explained to me that, Mark, you know, I know you're only five, but you're still, you know, you're still a sinner. You, st- you know, you've still done things. And just because we, as your parents, believe in God, does not mean that that just automatically goes to you. I'm sure they didn't use those words. Uh, but, and they told me, you know, you're, you're old enough that you should be able to start understanding this. As a child, I was a very, uh, no, fearful is the word, but I was very cautious about everything. And so even though my parents were kind of encouraging me to uh, take this step, and I was definitely a people pleaser, I was too scared to, to be perfectly honest. I wouldn't make the decision because I really wasn't sure what was going on. So I went to bed, but I tell you what, I couldn't sleep. I laid awake in there and thought and thought about it for the longest time. And finally I got up, I went into my parents' bedroom and woke them up and said, okay, <laughs> I'm ready now. So uh, so at that, that was my initial putting my faith in Christ. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says... For by grace you have been saved, and it's through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any of us should boast. And so the question is, is why? So what now? You know, what's what's changed because of that? And so I like to not stop with verse nine. I like to keep going into verse ten. It says, "For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand." that we should walk in them. And so when, at age five, Christ saved me from my sins, I mean, is the good way. But I don't believe he just saves us from stuff. I believe he also saved me to something. And he saved me to a life of uh, good works. And I've appreciated this God space study because it helps me, um, those of you who know me, know that I get the privilege, the Lord has blessed me, I, I love cattle ranching, and the Lord has given me the privilege to work in that industry. And on the one hand, I would love nothing better than to get on my horse and go out with the cows and not see another person all day. But I, I don't believe that's what God's called me to. God's called us to share our faith as we've, as we've been learning and to, to do that. And I've gotten the privilege of doing that. Um, when I was in high school, our pastor gave a challenge to us to, to serve, or I think it was more to serve God in ministry, to be able, like in full-time ministry. And I was very, very challenged by that. I went to Bible school to prepare for that, not knowing what that meant. 
A lot of people thought I was going to be a pastor, but if you see me up here, you obviously know that wasn't my calling. <laughs> and some people thought I was going to be a missionary. Um, anyways, all that to say, there were, a lot of people thought I was going to do that, but as I've tried to in faith follow God, what I believe God is calling me to, and I think probably calling all of us to, is each of our lives should be full-time ministry every day. So when I am at work at the ranch, it's a full-time ministry, and I need to be known as Mark the Christian, not Mark the Cowboy. Or when I'm at home, it's not just time for me. It's home. It's safe. I can crash and relax, which there is some of that that goes on. But I have a wife that I need to love as Christ loved the church, and I have three boys who I need to train in godliness. And so there really is – that is my challenge. Um, obviously, I'm not perfect at it. Maybe not even very good at it yet. I don't know. So as you think of me, you guys can pray for me in those areas. But that is the story of what the Lord has done and is doing, I guess, in my life. Literal side or the word for word side. Theologians call that a direct equivalency, whereas the thought for thought is a dynamic equivalency translation. Uh, They're all good. I want to encourage you that, uh, as Josh McDowell reminded us, uh, are the Bibles we hold in our hands, the English Bibles, uh, good translations are 99.999% accurate to the original manuscripts. And so that is important to understand and know. Uh, so we can have great confidence. I would encourage you not to get stuck on one version. Yes, you have your primary go-to version. As I do, I use the New American Standard Bible. And that's what I use on Sunday mornings. But in my study and preparation and reading, I will refer uh, to other versions uh, as well, including uh, the the New Living Translation, the message, and others, just to get an idea of how others approach the text that I'm going to be studying for that particular day. So I hope that is helpful for you. Uh, Just one more word about uh, the Bibles we have in our hands today. Wes did an excellent job last year of teaching about how we got our English Bibles. And I just want to remind you that uh, the Bibles we hold in our hands are really miraculous and a great blessing from God. Uh, In the literary world, if you just look at pieces of literature, classic literature, of course the Bible is at the top of that list, uh, but uh, we have over, uh, I think last count was over 5,000, close to 6,000 Uh, manuscripts of portions of the New Testament scattered around in museums in the world. Uh, And uh, the closest of those is within uh, probably 35 years of the Apostle John's death in uh, the 90s of A.D. Uh, The earliest manuscripts are dated about 125. Uh, So the authority, authenticity, the accuracy of God's Word is very critical And I appreciate people who spend their lives, dedicating their lives to the study of those manuscripts. Uh, As a comparison, uh, every university teaches Caesar's Gallic Wars as absolute history and absolute truth. Uh, But the extant, it's called the extant copies, because the original copies, of of course, are gone. Uh, But every university would say that, yes, Caesar wrote this, this is accurate history, and yet there's only three extant copies of manuscripts of Caesar's Gallic Wars, and we really don't know if he wrote it or not because those manuscripts are separated from the originals by a thousand years, and yet it's still regarded as highly accurate and authoritative to history of the time. 
So when you put that next to the Bible manuscripts with over 5,000 manuscripts, uh, we have a very authoritative, accurate, trustworthy source that you hold in your hands. And in our country and in the English language, we have the great privilege of having all of these versions. Uh, What a blessing that is. Well, with that, if you would take your version of the Bible that you're using, whether paper or digital, and turn to the little letter of Galatians, turn to the book of Galatians in the New Testament, and we'll be looking at this passage. Wes laid the historical groundwork for us out of Acts chapter 9. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have sustained, superintended, and protected your word through all of the centuries that we know today that we hold your authentic, authoritative, and trustworthy word in our hands, in our own heart language. What a blessing. And Lord, we do pray again for Bible translators around the world still working on portions of your word to move it into the heart language of tribes and nations that do not have it yet. And Lord, we pray for their perseverance, endurance, and great joy in that task. Thank you for today and for blessing us with one another. I thank you for each one here. Lord, we know that each person has a set of circumstances that some may be adverse and difficult, others very joyful. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit, through the power of your word, would do a work in each heart and life here this morning. Thank you that you're with us, that you are the object, you are the subject of our adoration and our worship. May we ever remember and keep at the forefront of our mind that you alone are worthy of our celebration and our exaltation. We thank you, Lord, that you guide us through the power of your spirit and the truth. We pray we'd be attentive to your word this morning and that we would go from this place being transformed by this encounter with you, with your word, and with one another. Thank you for our children downstairs and in the nursery and for those who minister to them. We pray that each one would grow in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ this morning. Thank you for our country. We thank you for the freedom you have blessed us with here to meet and worship in a building such as this. Thank you for your church, and we thank you for other Bible-believing churches in this community and around this area. And thank you, Lord, for the blessing it is to meet here together. And we pray for our country. We pray for the upcoming election that your will would be done. And again, Lord, remind us that you are the one who establishes kings and takes them down. And may our ultimate trust be in you and you alone and not in any political system. Thank you for this morning, for your grace and mercy. We pray now that uh, my words would be accurate, and Lord, that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. If you watched the uh, Summer Olympics, uh, one of the the highlights, for me anyway, is the uh, opening exercises or the opening of the Olympics and and being held in Rio and Brazil, the opening, and of course, uh, someone lights the Olympic flame with the Olympic torch. And typically, that honor goes to one of the most greatest uh, athletes that the host country has produced. And everybody expected that it would be the soccer great Pele. And, uh, but because of health reasons, he could not show up. And so they had to find someone else to light the, the uh, Olympic uh, cauldron there, uh, the opening uh, Olympics there. Uh, he had to bow out, Pele did, and uh, so the answer was is a man named Vanderlei Cordero de Lima. Uh, you may know of him, but he was a good choice because he was a marathoner in the 2004 Athens Games, and uh, he ran that race with an incredible and surprising performance. 
He was not expected to meddle at all. Uh, there were others much more qualified than him to run the marathon and win. Uh, his personal time was slower. His best time was slower than uh, others in the race, but he ran that race, and he was leading the 26.2 miles. Uh, DeLima was leading it, and his quest for gold changed very quickly. Now, if you'll watch, maybe you can catch the lights back there. And uh, we have from the 2004 Games in Athens. Uh, DeLima was set to win gold, and yet he'd finished third, even when he got derailed uh, by this crazy drunk guy in a kilt. And <laughs> evidently, this uh, guy made a habit of this. He interrupted the British Grand Prix some years before that. Uh, but uh, you wonder why. But this is exactly where the Galatian believers find themselves. This is really a metaphor for what was happening to the churches in Galatia and the Apostle Paul who has jumped in with both feet wondering what in the world is going on. Later on, we see in uh, the book of Galatians chapter 5 verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And so for every believer, the danger is there. We could be running very well in the life our Christian life and running this marathon of the Christian life, and yet something may deflect us from our goal. And that is such a picture of what happened at that time. He fell to third place, Delima did. Uh, he was awarded a bronze medal, which he said was his gold. And uh, later on, he was awarded a major sportsmanship trophy. Uh, but he was a national hero in Brazil because he kept going. But, uh, you know, the Christianity is really a story about conversion. For those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, each one of us has a story, as Mark shared his this morning, about what Jesus Christ has done in our lives and what he continues to do in our lives. And what a tremendous blessing that that is. The Christianity is about conversion, and we find no more profound conversion in the New Testament than one that uh, <clears throat> that Wes read for us out of Acts chapter 9 of the Apostle Paul, then known as Saul, a persecutor of the church, who became a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a terrorist of the church, became, became an evangelist, and that was a transformation for sure. 
He met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and his life was permanently transformed. And I am sure if we went around this room and those of you who know Christ as Savior have believed in him for everlasting life, we would hear stories, maybe not as dramatic as the Apostle Paul, but yet just as miraculous, just as amazing. And so we come here, and the Apostle Paul is being attacked. His gospel message is being attacked by false teachers who have crept into the churches in Galatia and elsewhere, and they are trying to overlay a system of the law, Mosaic law, upon the people that they're really not saved unless uh, they uh, adhere to the Mosaic law, especially circumcision, the rite of circumcision, which was for Old Testament Israel. And Paul is fighting back against this, and they're evidently attacking him personally, and so he has to defend his apostleship. Uh, They're attacking his credentials, if you will. And the Apostle Paul in this passage in chapter 1, verses 11 through 23, his primary emphasis is the fact that he is separating or distancing himself from the Christian leadership and the churches in Jerusalem and others to say that this message that he preached and his apostleship is from Jesus Christ and no one else. He wasn't tutored by somebody in Jerusalem to give this gospel message. In fact, in verses 11 and 12, we see that there is a divine source to the gospel. Look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1 of Galatians. For I would have you know, brethren, that for the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a divine message. Nobody could dream up the gospel. You know, we human beings, we complicate anything that is simple. And that is certainly true of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over the centuries, it has been complicated, corrupted, and and just uh, massacred in so many ways. And the simple truth is, is when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as, as Mark pointed out, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it is by grace through faith that we're saved, not of ourselves, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. There is a simple part of the gospel. It is not simplistic, but it is simple that even a child of five years old could understand that Jesus died for them, was buried and rose again, gaining the victory over sin and death and preparing a place in heaven for us. He is our Savior. So this great conversion story. Galatians forcefully, and I need to emphasize that, the Apostle Paul is forceful in how he approaches these Galatian believers. It answers the question, are we saved by believing or by achieving? And remember, salvation has three parts. There is justification, I was saved from the penalty of sin. There is glorification. I will be saved from the very presence of sin when I reach heaven. But this middle part, or sanctification, I am being saved from the very power of sin. And it's all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The divine source of the gospel, Paul emphasizes, is from God himself. It is not man-made. And then he goes on to use his own life and his example in the what happened in him. And this is where we get the model for the three-minute testimony, a life before conversion, a life at conversion, a life after conversion. And we see that just detailed very well in verses 13 through 24. In verses 13 through 14, we see a life before conversion. The Apostle Paul, in fact, in these two verses, he uses six personal pronouns, and then we'll notice the change. He's the subject, but once he gets to conversion, it changes, and God is the subject. Look at verse 13 and 14. 
For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Uh, we read about that over in Philippians, or excuse me, yes, Philippians chapter 3. Too many bookmarks here. Philippians chapter 3, uh, where the Apostle Paul is talking about his former manner of life, his confidence in his flesh, in other words, in his achievements, in his performance, for he says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he details why. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. According to that yardstick, that measurement of Jewish life, he was an upstanding, guaranteed to go to heaven kind of guy because of his performance. And yet he says that his past is there and everybody is aware of it. Everybody knows it. And for us, for you and I, our past is in the past, whether we got saved at age 5 or age 25 or age 45. We still have a past, and God uses that. He's at work. Isn't it interesting, if you look back on your past, like I can, because I wasn't, uh, didn't believe in Christ until I was 28 years old, that I look back and I, I can see now that God was guiding my steps, even as a pagan, as an atheist, as an agnostic, that God was guiding my steps and preparing things for us, for me. Paul reminded his readers of his past religion in verse 13, his reputation in his former manner of life, his reputation for works. He reminded us of his persecution of the righteous, of the Christians. He had a passion for religion in verse 14. So in life before conversion, he was, he was in an upward zenith, if you will. He was heading up in that ancestral tradition. And yet that was life before conversion. He uses that as a very strong contrast to what is going to follow. His life at conversion, beginning in verse 15, this is the turning point of grace, the turning point of grace. But when God, but when God, what a great statement. Uh, I was reading this week about an art form in Japan. Let me see if I can get it here. Uh, it's called... If I can pronounce it correctly, kintsukori, it means golden repair. We see a piece of pottery up on, on the left. They're all broken, and we would throw that away. Uh, but this Japanese art form takes uh, porcelain bowls and pottery and uses gold to repair them. And so you get the results that you see on the right. I think I have one more picture, yes. Uh, and it's to repair with gold, the art of repairing pottery with gold or silver lacquer, and understanding that the piece is more beautiful than having been broken. Uh, it's a, a philosophy movement, really, in Japanese culture. It celebrates imperfection in a way, and yet there is a repair done. There is something more beautiful that's produced after the thing is broken. It supposedly originated with a Japanese shogun in the 15th century, and he sent a damaged uh, Chinese tea bowl back to China to be repaired. And when it was returned, it had real ugly metal staples holding it together. 
And so some of the craftsmen, artisans around that shogun took it and uh, removed the staples and used gold to fill in those things. Uh, it's uh, what is once uh, seemingly pristine is even more beautiful. And the Apostle Paul, that's what happened to him. But God, it is the greatest interruption in our lives. And this is what the Apostle Paul is emphasizing here. He was a sinner, but God. He hated Jesus, but God. He tried to kill Christians, but God. He wanted to destroy the church, but God. Paul enjoyed being lost, but God. Paul wasn't looking for a new life, but God. He intended to kill more Christians and persecute them, but God. Paul, when talking about his former manner of life, talks about I. But when he talks about his conversion, the focus shifts. It is God who moves into action. God did it. God did it by his grace. God did it through Christ. He did it for the sake of others. Follow along as I read there in verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to in me. Uh, interestingly, God had his hand on him even in the womb. He knew what he was going to do with him. I firmly believe that God in his sovereignty has exhaustive foreknowledge. There are some in evangelicalism who believe that God has self-restricted uh, his foreknowledge. I do not believe the Bible teaches that. I believe that God knows the future exactly and perfectly well. And he knew exactly what he was going to do with the Apostle Paul, just as he knew exactly what he was going to do with Mark and others and all of us in our journey through this life. It doesn't mean we don't have a choice in that. That is one of the great antinomies of Scripture. On one hand, the Bible teaches God's total sovereignty, where he's working all things out through all the ages for his good, for his glory, and for the good of his people. And yet the Bible also teaches that we have human responsibility and the ability to make choices. Some call that free will. Uh, I tried that free will thing. I tried to astral project myself to Pluto. Didn't work. It just doesn't work. Tried to fly without an airplane. Doesn't work. So anyway, we do have the ability to make choices. We're restricted in some of those things, but we do have the ability to make choices. The Bible teaches both of those things. It's called an antinomy, two equally taught uh, conditions, and we try to make force them into some kind of understanding, and yet we have a difficult time doing that. In fact, it's impossible. And so in this sense, uh, God knew Paul even in the mother's womb. Psalm 139 tells us that he knew us before we were born, knew us before we were born in the womb, and he numbers our days. What a great blessing to know that our sovereign God knows exactly, and he is perfect, righteous, and just, makes no mistakes in that. Many of you are familiar with Lee Strobel, the author. He's been a pastor and a speaker and a writer, but uh, Lee Strobel, in one sermon, uh, talks about his life. He said, uh, you know, how can I tell you the difference? I'm quoting him. God has made in my life. Lee Strobel was an atheist, an attorney, and uh, very against Christianity at one point. He goes on to write, My daughter Allison was five years old when I became a follower of Jesus, and all she had known in those five years was a dad who was profane and angry. I remember I came home one night and kicked a hole in the living room wall just out of anger with life itself. I am ashamed to think of the times Allison hid in her room to get away from me. Five months after that, I believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, and that little girl went to my wife and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. 
at age five she said that. What was she saying? She'd never studied the archaeological evidence. She'd never studied the manuscript evidence for the Bible. Uh, all she knew was that her dad used to be one way, hard to live with, but more and more her dad is becoming this other way. And if that is what God does to people, then sign her up. At age five, she trusted in Jesus for eternal life. <clears throat> Strobel goes on to say, God changed my family. He changed my world. He changed my eternity. God changed his eternity. And I think for all of us, if we really think about it, I know he's changed my family, extended family. I know he's changed my world. He's changed my eternity. And that goes for you also. Mighty change in life. And then the Apostle Paul in the rest of this chapter, the second part of verse 16 through 23, it's a life after conversion. You are no longer who you used to be. I had to have that just drilled into my head because of being 28 years old, atheistic, agnostic, and uh, just a rebel at heart. Uh, I knew there were things in my life that it just were sticking with me. And it was drilled in my head, you are not who you used to be since Jesus came into your life. First, Paul was chosen by God. Look again at verse 15. He set me apart from my mother's room. Paul was called by God's grace. He was converted by God. Look at verse 16. He revealed his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Uh, he was gone for three years. We know that. And in, in the Acts account, remember this conversion account is related in Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26, and here. So we have four different accounts of the, occur, of the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And we know that he went away to Arabia where Jesus taught him the truths of what he was supposed to know. He was converted for God. He was commissioned to preach Christ among the Gentiles. He did not consult with flesh and blood. He was making the point here that his gospel message wasn't mentored to him or he wasn't schooled in Jerusalem, in the uh, Jerusalem church, but God himself taught him these things. This message was authentic and authoritative as an apostle. In verse 17, he says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem and become acquainted with Cephas, who is Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now before God, that I am, uh, now I assure you before God, I am not lying. Then I went up to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I, still, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. And so he had no contact with the Jerusalem church other than that 15 days. He departed to another country, to Arabia, then back to Damascus. And he only sought companionship of a few. And he concluded his testimony and he returned to Tarsus, his hometown up in uh, Syria. And uh, he glorified God. He was unknown. But they kept hearing in verse 23, He who persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Interesting. Notice they weren't glorifying him. They were glorifying God because what God had done in a changed life. In the early days of missions to mainland China, there's a story that came out 
uh, a member of the Chinese royal, royal family visited the home of one of the early missionaries. And later that same day, another Chinese person came to call at the missionary's home. And this, this visitor said, you have had royal visitors today. The missionary said, yes, but how did you know? I know, said the man, because the perfume of the royal family still lingers in the air. They use a special, delicate, and lovely perfume that no one else is allowed to use. You can always detect their presence by the sweetness of the perfume. The Lord Jesus leaves a royal fragrance in the hearts of those he indwells. It cannot be matched by human effort, by human performance. The perfume that makes his presence so attractive is a heavenly compound of holy character, love, peace, winsomeness. Those who linger in his presence are filled with that marvelous and heavenly aroma. Billy Graham said, We are the Bibles the world is reading. We are the creeds the world is needing. And we are the sermons the world is heeding. A few take-home tips, and I am uh, thankful to Ray Pritchard for these. Uh, first of all, the, go- the Christian gospel comes from God and not from man. Remember that. It's not up to people's opinion, but it has been authoritative given to us. In fact, over 150 times in the New Testament, the uh, requirement for salvation is belief or a synonym of that word and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life. If you're here today and you're not persuaded that Jesus is the Savior, you may think you're a Christian, you may have walked an aisle, you may have been baptized, you may come to church all the time, but if you are not fully persuaded that Jesus says who he says he is, that you can have everlasting life in He, him and him alone, then you need to reevaluate where you're at. You need to be fully persuaded that no matter what comes your way in the circumstances, in the movements of the earth, that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Secondly, conversion is a pure miracle that depends upon God alone. Each one of us who have trusted in Christ as Savior, whether at age 5 or age 28, it's a miracle. Only God does that stuff. It's not because some slick preacher on the radio, God may use somebody like that, or a book, or a a conference. God may use those things, but God alone is the one who converts us to Christianity. And then thirdly, and remember this, especially as you apply the God space uh, principles, uh, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. We've kind of sanitized the Apostle Paul over the centuries, and yet when you read his story with with open eyes, he was not a nice guy before he was a Christian. When he was Saul, he was a, a force to be reckoned with. He was, he was one to be feared if you were a believer in Christ. So no one, whether it's someone in your family, someone uh, in your workplace, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Keep praying, keep witnessing, keep believing. You never know what God will do. He will surprise us every time. Uh, I was reading this week that uh, Australia is moving. Uh, Not the people, they're all there, but the continent itself is moving. Uh, Of course, all the continents move, but Australia is moving uh, some 70 millimeters, which is about 2.8 inches uh, per year, to the northeast. So it's heading up towards Indonesia, actually. Australia, in theory, was once connected to India and Antarctica, and it broke away at some point, or so some say. 
uh, but the continent still drifts away. Uh, it's too slow for us to notice, uh, but it's starting to mess with the pinpoint accuracy of the GPS system. And uh, so if you're a farmer in Australia and you depend on GPS to put your crops in and make the rows straight, it can get thrown off because since 1994, the continent has moved five feet. And that seems like very little, and yet for GPS systems, that's tremendous when we depend on pinpoint accuracy. And uh, for uh, airliners and such, it is very important. It's becoming less down under in Australia. It's uh, moving northeast. Uh, over time, it's significantly thrown off Australia's latitude and longitude coordinates, uh, causing accuracy issues, as I said, with GPS technologies. It was last updated, in the technology was last updated there in 1994, and so the current uh, technology we have relies on accurate coordinates. And so that's uh, been a problem. They're trying to address the problem. Uh, especially if the advent of driverless cars comes about. <laughs> you know, that could be a real problem. Five feet can be everything when you're in a driverless car. Uh, but when you think about that, when you think of the continents drifting, what a picture of everything in our world changes. You know, that's one of the, one of the sayings that I remember is that uh, the only constant in life is change. And the mighty continents are even changing. But yet, for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are three things, foundational things, which never, ever change. First one, God doesn't change. The second one, his word doesn't change. And thirdly, his promises do not change. These are settled forever in the heavens, and nothing will change what God is going to do. I quoted you A.B. Simpson last week in closing, and I want to do that again because it's such a powerful quote. A.B. Simpson was a preacher from another era, but he was talking about the gospel, and he said the gospel tells rebellious men and women that God is reconciled, that justice is satisfied, that sin has been atoned for, that the judgment of the guilty may be revoked, the condemnation of the sinner canceled, the curse of the law blotted out, the gates of hell closed, the portals of heaven opened wide, the power of sin subdued, the guilty conscience healed, the broken heart comforted, the sorrow and misery of the fall undone. Therefore, as Paul wrote in Corinthians, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your holiness. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you use your word in each one of our lives in miraculous ways. As your Holy Spirit applies it, we pray that even this day and through this week as you give us our days, that you would bring to remembrance the truth of your word and Paul's testimony here and that the Apostle Paul was used by you in a very difficult time with much adversity and, and many seeking his life. And Lord, yet he remained faithful. And thank you for your power that enabled him to do that. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen.